I'm Josh Porter, and this is the Van City Church Podcast. The following teaching is part 73 in the series, The Gospel of Matthew. If you happen to be a regular listener to the Van City Podcast and you believe in what our church is up to, whether you're in Vancouver or somewhere else in the world, consider supporting the church financially by visiting vancity.church. On the sacred night of Passover, Jesus ruins dinner by announcing to his best friends that they will betray, deny, and abandon him. For some weird reason, his best friends then wrote this story down and shared it with future generations of Jesus' disciples, to their own shame. The story that we're reading tonight that Allah just read is a story about the worst Passover ever. As uh, modern Americans, we don't have a great analogy for observing Passover because we tend to drain the story and significance from our traditions and celebrations until there's nothing left but a family get-together with a bunch of yahoos who'd rather not be there. Or, you know, the, the cultural Christian narrative has a weirdly selective memory about holidays and traditions. So you got Thanksgiving, all, all kinds of evil in the history of that story. you got the colonizing and the racism and the genocide. But we figure, eh, what can you do? Let's have a big meal, usually purchased from factory farms that wreak all sorts of suffering and havoc on creation. Because, hey, it's Thanksgiving. But then Halloween... There's some weird pagan stuff in that history. A lot of people don't realize that today's Halloween's festivities are thought by many historians to be influenced and derived from Christian customs. How about that? In fact, if you dip your toes into the thrilling waters of the historicity of holiday celebrations around the world, you'll discover that our Western Christmas has far more customs that are pagan in origin than our modern Halloween. Far more. Heck, Historians don't even know where half the Halloween stuff came from. In Ireland, they were carving up turnips to look like faces. And uh, if you want to go on a little rabbit hole for your own amusement, you should look up one of those faces. It will terrify you. And they were meant to ward off evil spirits. And one has to assume, after you've seen the turnip carved up to look like a face, that they were 100% effective all the time for warding off evil spirits. And hey, they were to keep evil spirits away. Shoot, I want some of that now. Maybe we should be carving up those turnips. But no, we learned in the 80s that Halloween is for devil worship and playing heavy metal records backward. So we can't do that. Just this year, I was walking the streets of my neighborhood on October 31st. Don't tell anybody. And I looked down at my four-year-old daughter who was dressed as a Dalmatian. And I felt a chill from, from the evil of it all. My point is, actually, there's uh, two points. My first is to loosen everybody up, you know, after a month of preaching a theology of politics. But the second and more significant point is that modern American people have a decidedly narrow perspective of the history of our traditions, which makes this story kind of hard for us to understand. We're big on traditions. But usually they aren't rooted in a significant, meaningful history that extends beyond the narrow margins of our own tribe. So maybe you're thinking like, oh, hey, no way. My family has been observing meaningful Christmas traditions for years. But often those traditions are about your family. They're not emotionally rooted in centuries of the experience and story of a people and the story of God and your connection to that story. But the Passover was... 
The Passover was observed in a very different time and place amongst a very different culture with a very strong group identity. In the West, we're individualists. Our paradigm is for private life, private property, private celebrations. It's why we think of significant observances as family time. But our family time and not anybody else's family time. It's not a time for other people to come over and celebrate. It's private. And many of us don't even know our family's greater history. I sure as heck don't. Where did the porters come from? I have no idea. What is our ancestry? Don't know. Were we actual porters at some point that carried things around? I assume so. I have no idea. And the only way I'll ever know is if someone else figures it out and goes out of their way to tell me. Because I'm not going to you know, spit in a cup and pay the internet people to tell me I was a Viking or some such thing. In fact, this is the predicament of white people. We have no sense of cultural identity. In his book, White Awake, Daniel Hill argues that everyone has a way of answering the questions, who am I and how do I fit into the world, and that we answer those questions through the lens of culture, race, ethnicity, and or class. But author David Swanson points out that the predicament of white people is that we don't see ourselves as a distinct culture, but rather a neutral standard by which other cultures are categorized. Not so for first century Jews. From everything we can tell about history, the Passover reached back for centuries into the past, generations of Jewish pain and struggle and hope and life, and it brought that story of salvation and hope and longing into the present again and again around a dinner table with family and friends who belonged to the same story, who were waiting with the same hope and anticipation for hundreds of years. So, picture this. Imagine you're a first century Jew, you belong to this story and this legacy and this hope. You are God's people and you are waiting to be rescued. As Moses led Israel to salvation through the parted sea, to freedom from her oppressors, you are waiting for Messiah to lead Israel once again to freedom through the chaos and triumph of revolt against her oppressors. And now you believe it's finally happening. Because it's Passover in Jerusalem and you're sitting on the floor at a dinner table across from a man who sets your heart on fire with the hope of salvation. And you believe that this man, Jesus, is that Messiah, that hope. This particular Passover is pregnant with anxious hope more so than any other in your life. It's no longer a hazy, unknowable promise of rescue somewhere on the distant future of God's unknowable timeline. It's here. You're sitting with it. But this Messiah isn't exactly who you expected. You believe he's the guy. You really believe it. But sometimes he's cryptic. And his teachings are often strange or incendiary. And often they don't sound like the Messiah anyone was expecting at all. So you've brought all this anxious hope and all these questions to that dinner table and now this Messiah is going on about dying. The Messiah can't die. But you're thinking, well, I mean, Jesus is cryptic and strange sometimes. Maybe we just don't get it. He's often metaphorical and symbolic and it goes right over our heads. He has to tell us all the time, here's what this means, here's what this means. And you figure, okay, so maybe we don't understand the whole dying thing. And then you look around the table and you figure, well, we have each other. There's 12 of us. And each of you is so different. But you're in this together. And you've been in it together for years now. And everyone's 
comes from radically different walks of life. You've got the far right former tax collectors and you've got the far left zealots and there's fishermen, working class people, there's brothers and there's strangers. And now that you've spent years together every single day, day in and day out, walking around with this Jesus character, spending every moment with him and with each other, and now he's talking about dying before the mission has even been carried out, before the mission is complete, before the revolution has begun. And then, if you remember the text from last week, he says that one of you at this table is going to betray him. And brokenhearted and panicked, you're all asking, well, it isn't me, is it? It can't possibly be me. And this is turning out to be the worst Passover ever. But you finish the meal with Jesus going on about his broken body and spilled blood and the bread and the cup somehow symbolize that. And though you don't understand, you follow along, you sing a hymn together, and you all head outside, not knowing that the darkness of this particular night is going to change everything. Not knowing that what happens next will be the hardest and worst part of the story. So you head to the garden following behind Jesus as you've done night and day for years now with a pit in your stomach and you're spinning the things that he said in, in your head. This is supposed to be a celebration. This was supposed to be the most hopeful, most beautiful Passover yet. He's going, he's going to die? Was he serious? Was he literal? And one of us is going to betray him? I saw him talking to Judas. Judas seemed upset and distraught. Is it him? And then this happens. Look down at Matthew chapter 26. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open Matthew chapter 26. And let's read together once again as Allah just read beginning in verse 31. The story says, Jesus told them, This very night you will all fall away on account of me. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. Verse 33 says, Peter replied, Even if all fall away on account of you, I never will. Truly I tell you, Jesus answered, this very night before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. But Peter declared, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all the other disciples said the same. This is the worst Passover ever. Earlier, Jesus predicted one betrayer. But now he says that all of them will become deserters and deniers and disowners. And my Bible translates verse 31 as Jesus saying, you will all fall away on account of me, but that doesn't quite capture the intensity of it. The phrase, will fall away, is actually one Greek word, skandalizo, and it's where we get the English word scandal, as in you will be scandalized by me. It means to trip up or ensnare or to deeply offend to the point of stumbling or falling away. It's actually the same word Jesus used in the Sermon on the Mount when he suggests gouging one's eye from the socket if it causes you to sin, if it scandalizes you. If your eye scandalizes you, gouge it out of your head. The thing is, up until now, that's not a weird term to apply to typical reactions to Jesus and his teaching. Strangers, religious leaders, Jewish men and women have all been offended, tripped up, scandalized by Jesus' teaching and lifestyle. Which is why Matthew, the author of this biography, in the original language, he uses an emphasized you to refer to the disciples. All of you, not the Pharisees, 
not the crowds, but my most trusted and beloved friends, you will all fall away. And notice the particularity of the wording. Look down at verse 31. What does Jesus say will be the thing that causes the disciples to fall away? Anyone? I know you're far away, but my ears aren't that bad. Look at verse 31. It's right in front of you. What does Jesus say will be the thing that causes them to fall away? Him, exactly. He is going to be the thing that will make them fall away. It won't be the threat of arrest that offends and scatters the disciples. It will be Jesus himself twisting the knife in the already wounded hearts of his friends. And it's happening tonight, as in any second now. And Jesus, immersed in the Hebrew Scriptures, he uses a verse from Zechariah 13 to explain, strike the shepherd, the sheep will be scattered, I will turn my hand against the little ones. Which is amazing because Jesus is interpreting Zechariah's words, written some 500 years prior, to be about him then. This isn't some insignificant moment in time, just some young men abandoning their friend This is something that has been alluded to in the God-inspired writings of the Hebrew Scriptures centuries prior. Tonight is a significant night. This is a fateful night, and it's the worst Passover ever. But look at verse 32. Immediately after this dire prediction, Jesus says, But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. This tiny line often gets lost in the reading. But this line is everything in a story like this one. Jesus is already looking beyond being abandoned by his friends, beyond his shameful execution, and he sees in the future a time when he is alive, when he's reunited with the twelve, and when he's leading them once again. In other words, Jesus is able to steady himself beneath the crushing weight of impending betrayal and death and to see himself restored to life and to his friends. Jesus predicts betrayal and denial, but we don't get any, this is it for us, from the master. Jesus announces impending denial and premeditated forgiveness in the same two sentences. But Peter, one of Jesus' disciples, perhaps understandably, is hung up on the whole denial thing. In verse 33, we read that Peter replies, Even if all fall away on account of you, I never will. Now, this seems on paper like a very heartfelt, very moving thing to say. Peter, the same urgent disciple who begged Jesus to call him out on the raging sea so many chapters ago, if you remember that story. And in a sense, it is pretty moving. We know the whole story, so it's easy to pick on Peter or to examine everything he says in light of everything he says. But here, in this moment... He tells Jesus, even if everyone else abandons you, I never will. The problem is, Jesus just said that everyone would abandon him. So at least one thing Peter has yet to accept, it's never the best idea to hear the authoritative words of Jesus and immediately rebuke him by saying, no, that's wrong. This happens all the time and to this day. It's especially popular among progressive expressions of quasi-Christianity in which individuals position themselves as authorities over Jesus and they declare which of his teachings are right and which of his teachings are wrong. So they say, sure, Jesus, you know, love one another. It's a great hashtag. Love it. Fight for justice. We can post that. No problem. That'll preach on Instagram. 
But deny yourself, die to yourself, wrong. Jesus was wrong about that one. But Peter's rebuking Jesus remains ever popular amongst those who think they know better. And then there's the whole thing that Peter doesn't deny that everyone else might fall away, just not him. I am, in other words, the best, most faithful disciple. So Peter assumes his own infallibility in this prediction, positions himself as morally superior to his fellow apostles, and he disagrees with and rebukes Jesus. Jesus says, all of you. And Peter says, no, all the others. But before we're too unkind to Peter, remember the night. Remember the anxious beating hearts and the pit in their stomachs and the ominous Lord's Supper with the promise of a broken body and spilled blood. Nothing is going the way it was supposed to. Someone, one of your closest friends, is going to betray the master, the weight of that. And now he's saying that everyone is going to turn their backs on him. It's, it's too much. And in the moment, it's too much for Peter to bear. It's more than just a disappointment. It's the hope of his people being dashed to pieces on one of the most sacred occasions of celebration and remembrance of their year. And for Peter, it's about to get worse. Look at verse 34. Truly, I tell you, Jesus answered, this very night before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. Not only will Peter fall away, aside from Judas, he will fall further than any of the twelve. The first, in this case, will be last. Interestingly, all four Gospels predict Peter's denial of Jesus, including the Gospel that Peter co-authored. And all of them with Jesus' unique trademark teaching emphasis of truly I tell you, which is a teaching tool unique to Jesus to emphasize what he's about to say. In every biography of Jesus' life, this particular falling away is brutally emphasized. Jesus tells Peter that the denial will come before the rooster crows, which is actually a Roman expression for a time between midnight and 3 a.m., or it could be just a basic proverbial term for very early in the morning. If you've ever seen a Jesus movie, most of them actually incorporate a literal rooster crowing when the scene comes to fruition, like the rooster knows and he's in on it. But it's unlikely that Jesus had an actual cock-a-doodle-doo in mind. Maybe he did. I don't know. It seems unlikely. And I mention that not to pick on the Jesus movies, but because it actually matters in the story. This scene takes place at night, and here we have Peter saying, Never, I will never, ever forsake you. And Jesus says, Not only will you forsake me, but you'll do it tonight, in the next few hours. Peter will fall far, he will fall soon, and he will fall repeatedly, three times. And look at what Peter says after having been rebuked by Jesus in verse 35. But Peter declared, even if, as in, even if that were true, Jesus said to Jesus, I'm still not convinced that what you say is true. Even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all the other disciples said the same. The thing is, there's some truth to what Peter is saying. It's actually a pretty complicated story. To hear the other gospel authors tell it, Peter is going to put up a fight to defend Jesus moments from this and at great personal risk. It seems that at some level anyway, Peter is ready to die for or with Jesus. But... 
his devotion will lack a certain substance. Peter is ready to defend his revolutionary Messiah. Peter is ready to defend the military Messiah. But a nonviolent Jesus who is willingly arrested and executed? What Peter lacks is the willingness to follow Jesus even when Jesus is not exactly who you expected him to be. Peter does not want a Messiah who dies or a group of apostles who abandon their master. And neither do the others. Jesus says all of them will fall away. Now here's the interesting thing about that. These stories about Jesus were transmitted, written down, circulated by Jesus' apostles and disciples in the early church. Matthew, we think, was written by Matthew, the tax collector, who was one of the twelve. Mark was written, some sources say, according to the testimony of Peter. We think he's kind of the co-author or the ghostwriter, maybe. Luke based his orderly account, he calls it, on the testimonies of the earliest disciples. And John, again, written by one of the disciples. His name for himself is the disciple that Jesus loved. Very humble. And all of them, all four biographies of Jesus' life, depict the apostles, the disciples, the early church as doubting, betraying, denying, and abandoning Jesus. Now, if you get to write your own history, you don't depict yourself as the blunderer, as shameful. You don't record history to your own humiliation. But that's exactly what the Gospels do, which is honestly one of the great predicaments of non-Christian Bible scholars grappling with the alleged historicity of the Gospel accounts. They agree, whatever's going on, there's no good reason to depict yourself so poorly except to tell what you believe is the truth. Now, Matthew doesn't even depict Jesus rebuking Peter or the rest of the twelve again for refusing to believe their master's prediction. Matthew just goes on to showcase through the narrative how poorly things go by simply documenting the events that follow. And he goes out of his way to incriminate himself. Matthew, the author's last words in tonight's story are, are all the other disciples, meaning including me, Matthew, said the same. We all disagreed with Jesus. Tonight's story reminds me of the awfulness of people, of me. A couple of weeks ago, I was talking with a close friend about the political venom and hateful rhetoric that became the impetus for our last series. If you're just joining us, it was a whole thing. Feel free to revisit the podcast. My friend and I were talking about the pearl-clutching disbelief that colored the political outrage of the last few years, as if the tiki torch rallies and the old men shouting white power from passing golf courts or public lynchings broadcast via the internet absolutely scandalized the fragile sensibilities of American optimism. I am always grieved by evil when I see it. God, I pray that this will always be the case. But it very rarely surprises me and yet many seemed aghast to discover there are racist or hateful or evil people in America or that there could be so many or that they might mobilize and parade so shamelessly in the streets when given a voice and a cause and permission to do so by the powers that be. To me, it made a lot of sense, this public rot in America. We'd pulled up the floorboards and discovered the crawl space littered with death. It wasn't new, it had been there all along. But I am pessimistic by nature, something I'm working on in my spiritual formation. And honestly, I think that I've grown a lot in the last couple of years in particular. 
But left to my own devices, left to my flesh, my outlook on people and the world gets very bleak in my sinfulness. This is an outlook that I cannot square with Jesus or the Bible story. As usual, the Bible paints a frustrating picture of humanity that is neither the dim, everyone is inherently and always awful nihilism, nor is it the candy-coated, you know, kind of millennial self-worship that proclaims everyone is wonderful and perfect and good exactly as they are. In the Bible, people are capable of good things, but we're also bent horribly out of shape, even the best of us, and we disappoint. Our heroes, the best of us, the great leaders of the church and of history are capable of awful things, and we disappoint one another. In his commentary on this passage, Frederick Dale Bruner writes this, The disciples' total undependability cannot throw Jesus into despair, for Scripture had taught him that this is the way people are, even his people. So this is a story about the worst Passover ever, and it's a tragedy. Not only that, but really the worst is yet to come. We know the entire story, so we tend to rush in our reading and thinking to a conclusion that we know to be inevitable. The empty tomb, the resurrection, the victory of God, and we read this part of the story in light of what we know is coming. But on a dark night in Jerusalem, Jesus' closest friends knew none of these things as we do. They knew their master's talk of a broken body, of spilled blood. They knew his promise of coming betrayal and abandonment and the bad news that everyone would fall away. And all of this, everything on the verge of breaking down and not yet to the worst of it, at the very time they believed that victory was imminent. So tonight, let's sit with them in this part of the story. It's a story that teaches us a few incredible things. Discipleship, following Jesus as teacher and as Lord, is a way of life based on a relationship. Ours with Jesus, Jesus' relationship with us. And on the evening of the worst Passover, we see that it is Jesus' commitment to us, not ours to him, that is the foundation on which this relationship is built. Here, Jesus sees the betrayal of his closest friends on the immediate horizon. The very people on whom his hopes for the church have been established are going to betray and deny and run from him in his hour of need. And he's already talking about meeting them later and leading them again. He's already looking beyond the heartbreak to the reconciliation. Now, of course, a relationship is a two-way street. Of course, you can't follow Jesus without committing your life to him. But the big difference that changes everything is that if you betray your commitment to Jesus, the foundation of the entire relationship will not crumble. The relationship is established and held up by Jesus' commitment to you, and it cannot be broken. Some of you need to hear this evening that even in your failure and even in your very bad season, and even in your betrayal and abandonment of Jesus, he is ready to meet you and to lead you again. And that through it all, his love for you has not changed. We wouldn't know how precious such love is or how truly in need we are of a master whose love knows no conditions if it weren't for our awfulness and our screwing it up. In his commentary on this passage, N.T. Wright says, Peter, 
big, strong, blustering Peter was about to be reduced to a spluttering, lying, weeping fool, perhaps that tells us something too about the power of Jesus' action. Perhaps when it starts to have its effect, the first sign is that we learn just how weak and needy we are. Don't forget that in the story Cam read last week, Jesus broke the bread and he gave the cup. And knowing Jesus, or knowing that Judas would betray him and that Peter would deny him and that the other ten apostles would desert him, he sat at the table with failures and he looked each of them in the eye, knowing what was to come, and said, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Again, Bruner argues, Jesus did not give the supper to his church because he believed she would deserve it by her subsequent behavior, or even because he believed the supper would strengthen her enough to surmount all future temptations. Jesus knew failure was on the horizon. So here's the tension. People who follow Jesus for centuries, really, have struggled and failed to make sense of this whole thing. On the one hand, you've got Jesus in the face of devastating unfaithfulness in his greatest hour of need, and he's confronting it with premeditated forgiveness and reconciliation. And this boggles the mind to the degree that disciples of Jesus have taken advantage of our forgiving Jesus, inventing something that's often called cheap grace, despite the New Testament addressing and condemning such a thing at length, you end up with a lot of talk about love and forgiveness and little concern for the devastating consequences of sin, which the Bible argues leads to death. And aware of this, other disciples of Jesus, wanting to right the wrong and course correct, they emphasize that very thing, the whole wages of sin is death thing, that is, aggressively and ushering the scandalous premeditated grace of Jesus out of the conversation so that everything revolves around awfulness, sin, and death. But this story puts both things uncomfortably in the same place as the Bible and Jesus in particular are so prone to do. This is a tragedy and it gets worse. Jesus' 12 closest friends, his chosen apprentices, they're human, very young men actually, we think. The story doesn't tell us explicitly, but I would venture a guess that even after everything that follows in the story, to the end of their life, they would carry the scars of betraying Jesus until they died. Because faithlessness has consequences. Ask a married couple who has gone through an affair and survived. Even years of hard work and therapy and healing and repentance, they will both tell you that faithlessness has consequences. And it's for that very reason that Jesus' willingness to forgive so scandalizes the hearts and minds of his followers that we cannot make sense of it. Who cares about grace that costs nothing? If sin and faithlessness are really without consequence and if it costs Jesus nothing at all to forgive and forget, then who cares? It's not really that impressive and it doesn't do much, honestly. But if sin and faithlessness really do lead us to death and if our relationship with Jesus is a real relationship with a real person, then this story is as beautiful as it is tragic. And those things have to live in the same place. We love stories about bumbling disciples because we see ourselves in them, and that's one reason these stories are here at all. 
But I doubt that Matthew embarrassed himself and his friends just so we could feel better about ourselves or superior to them. We are meant to experience the pain of this evening, to see ourselves in the disciples, to see our story in theirs, and to see Jesus' promise to go ahead of them as a promise to us as well. So you need to ask yourself this evening which dimension of this story you need to hear in this season of your life. There's a lot of church talk beating up on guilt and shame and wanting to insulate fragile Christians in a bubble to protect them from their own brokenness. You're awesome all the time. Don't ever feel bad about anything. But that's a really difficult thing to square with the Bible story. I think we need to confront and deal with our awfulness and our unfaithfulness sometimes. Not to wallow in it or beat up on or pity ourselves, but to bring ourselves back to our great collective need for the forgiveness and leadership of Jesus. Maybe tonight is a time for you to confess faithlessness and failure and to repent and in brokenness and grief to throw yourself on the premeditated grace of your king. Or maybe you're already there and the weight of your faithlessness is dang near killing you and you need to crawl out from under the thing that you cannot carry and allow Jesus to forgive you and to go before you and to lead you again. I know lots of people who their backs bent from carrying the heavy stone of their own spiritual ineptitude, simply lay down and die a slow spiritual death, allowing the vibrance and intimacy of their relationship with God to bleed out slowly until all that's left are mundane rhythms. And you don't hear from God and you don't talk to God and you're not finding life and hope every day in God who come before Jesus in repentance and let him forgive you and lead you again. All of of us are in this story in both of these ways. And we're usually in one side of it more than the other in any given season of life. And we oscillate between the two. It's only one scene from a greater story, but it demands deep reflection and it demands a response to repent to reconcile and to be led once again and to respond in worship at the near unbelievable reality that Jesus is immune to the awfulness of people, to our failure, and that unlike us, he is unwavering in his faithfulness. So let's pray together as a church and ask Jesus to show us where we should go from here. Thanks for listening to Van City. You can connect with us and find more teachings and available resources at www.vancity.church. You can support Van City financially at vancity.church/give.